we're currently in the season of Advent, uh, which is a season of preparation, uh, of anticipation, of waiting as we approach Christmas. And, and the purpose of Advent um, you know, isn't just so that we can market all different kinds of Advent calendars, which there are some cute ones out there, um, but it's a reminder that preparation is an important part of the process. And sometimes we focus so much on the event or the end goal uh, that we minimize or sometimes even forget to prepare. And so Advent is a reminder that preparation isn't just part of the process, but in some ways, preparation itself is the work. And so before we jump in, I want to give you all a moment uh, to reflect on this question. Uh, what's your posture and approach towards preparation? Right? If you're thinking about preparing for an event or a trip or an activity, you know, what, what feelings surface for you when you think about preparation? Right? I'll give you a moment to reflect on that, and if you're comfortable, feel free to share that with a neighbor next to you. All right, so what are some of your thoughts out there? What did you reflect on as we think about preparation? Right? What came up for some of you all? What are your procrastination? So avoiding preparation, essentially, yeah? Apprehension, so maybe a little bit of fear towards approaching preparation? Being overprepared? So I, I feel like we have some people who love to prepare, right? Yes. <laughs> Anything else? Making a list. Making a list. All right, so being intentional. Checking it twice. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so a few years before pandemic, um, I had the chance to accomplish one of my goals uh, when I raced in an Olympic distance triathlon. And so it involves a mile swim, and then a 25-mile bike ride, and then you tack on a 10K at the end. Um, which I completed in about three hours. Yeah, oh no. Which did in about three hours and 20 minutes, which like, isn't a great time, but I also didn't finish last in my age group, so that was the most important. Um, and part of my preparation for that race was spending months, right, just swimming laps in the pool, uh, going on a couple of long bike rides a couple of times a week, uh, both of which pretty enjoyable for me, um, but my least favorite part of preparation was the running, um, which now that I think about it, I should have just done a biathlon, right, and just, just skipped the running entirely. Um, but I spent the least amount of time preparing for the running portion, and by the least amount, I mean I only practiced one run, like the week <laughs> leading up to the race. And even then, I only ran half the distance. Because in my mind, I was like, I just need to do that twice. I I've got it. It'll be fine. <laughs> Should be fine. But on the day of the race, I was not fine. Um, it was very humbling because when you check in for the race, they put your age on your calf. Um, so, you know, because they release you by age group. And when I started fading and struggling that last half of the run, <laughs> I began seeing people much older than me just not struggling, running right past me. I'm like, oh, there goes a 55-year-old. Oh, there goes a 59-year-old. <laughs> and, and all I could think of in my mind was, I really should have run at least one more time before this race. <laughs> <laughs> and I think all of us have had experiences um, with preparation where we've overlooked something, whether it's intentional or unintentional. 
And as we move through this Advent season, you know, not only are we reminded to have intention about our preparation, um, but we're also invited to focus on specific areas in our preparation. And so last Sunday, Jenna started our Advent journey by exploring our invitation to hope, right? especially during difficult and challenging seasons. And as we move into the second Sunday of Advent, we're invited to reflect on peace, which feels like a distant reality, right? given all the disruptions and conflicts that are happening around the world and within our own lives. And we might be tempted to overlook and just opt out, right, and not think it's worth the time or energy to prepare for what peace might mean or look like in our lives. But peace was a big component of what Christ offered through his life, through his teaching. Right? He embodied what their Hebrew culture called shalom, right, a more holistic perspective of peace that incorporates restoration and healing in our collective well-being. From the image of Jesus as the Prince of Peace, to how he comforted his disciples by telling them that he would give them peace that's not from this world. To his invitation from the Sermon on the Mount for us to be peacemakers. And we're invited to embody the peace, the shalom, that Jesus offered and modeled. And so the question I want to explore this morning is how might we focus our Advent preparation around peace? Right. How are we preparing ourselves to experience and embody the peace of Christ and to live as peacemakers? And as an Enneagram 9, my type is literally a peacemaker, uh, which sounds like an unfair advantage, but I've still had to learn how to be intentional right, with both my external and internal experience of peace. Because it's easy for me to go numb, to shut myself off, from external conflicts for the sake of keeping my inner peace. But ignoring what's happening around me isn't an authentic way of being either. And so even for someone like me, there's an invitation to focus my preparation around what peace looks like this Advent season. And in our lectionary text this morning, we'll read about the experience of John the Baptist as he prepares others for the arrival of Christ and what that means for our own preparation this Advent season. And so we start in verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so Mark starts his telling of the gospel story uh, by jumping right in, right? Without the genealogies, there's no list of long people, like names. And he begins by highlighting the preparation that leads up to the actual arrival of Christ. He makes a call back to the prophet Isaiah, who writes about a messenger that will prepare the way for the one who will bring them freedom and restoration. And if we look at the fuller context of what Isaiah wrote, this is what he actually said. He said, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And so this image paints a picture where the playing field is getting leveled. Right? Those valleys where the oppressed and marginalized are struggling will be brought up. 
And in the mountains where those who are lost in their own power and influence will be brought down. And we'll see later on that this messenger is a reference to John the Baptist, who does end up preparing a path by giving voice to and empowering the marginalized, while also protesting and speaking truth to those in power. And so this image speaks to the painful and oppressive experience of dehumanization, right? And it goes both ways. For those who have been seen as less than human and not deserving of even basic needs or rights, and then for those who are on a pedestal with access to power that can easily be abused and corrupted, that can also be dehumanizing, right? No one's meant to have that kind of power. And so this preparation that John the Baptist is participating in is an attempt to equalize, right? It's to re-enter and recenter everyone around their common humanity so that there's a path of accessibility to Christ for all people when he arrives. <laughs> And so the preparation work is actually to reinstill the humanity of each person back to themselves. And so when it comes to our preparation for peace this Advent, maybe we're invited to practice a way of rehumanizing others. Right? How are we lifting up or bringing down people in a way that returns them back to their humanity? You know, I acknowledge that peacemaking is difficult work. And it can feel hopeless, right, when there are relationships or circumstances that seem impossible. When the gap between individuals and groups of people is so great that there doesn't seem to be an opportunity to recalibrate. For example, what's happening in Gaza and Israel is truly devastating. Uh, we lament the pain and loss uh, that continues each day. And there's a couple of people uh, in our Vox community Tiffany Goodwin, Van Camp, and Lindsay Stanick, uh, who work with and support an organization called Combatants for Peace, which is a grassroots movement of both Palestinians and Israelis working together on the ground to end the occupation, to bring sustainable peace and freedom and equality. And so they started this work back in 2005 when a group of former Israeli soldiers um, you know, they firsthand witnessed the violent oppression that they were responsible for, and they began to refuse carrying out their mission in the West Bank. And at the same time, there were some formerly imprisoned and tortured Palestinians who were hoping to find a nonviolent way forward through this ongoing conflict to somehow end the cycle of violence. And so the first time this group met together uh, in a hotel lobby, there was anxiety, Fear, curiosity, tension, a lot of silence. And until each of them began sharing their own stories and experiences, they began to find the commonality that they all had been groomed for violence from a young age. Right? They were taught to kill people that they had never known or had never met. And this gathering became the beginning of the difficult work of preparing a path of nonviolence and peace for these communities embedded in conflict. And so the co-founders of Combatants for Peace, uh, Suleiman Khatib, who's a Palestinian, and Abner Wishnitzer, who's an Israeli, they recently wrote an article in response to the October 7 attacks. And they shared the origins of their movement and their ongoing vision and hope. This is what they wrote. 
They said, we not, need not only a real peace process, but a project of rehumanization to support it. This is an uphill struggle. Many people here and around the world believe that this conflict is fated to go on. We, by contrast, insist that humans and the societies we make are not frozen entities, but processes open to intervention. Past traumas, dependencies, and habits of thought limit our horizons. But both societies also possess notions of compromise, like sula, which is reconciliation in Arabic, a time-tested tribal mechanism for conflict resolution on which to draw in order to facilitate a peaceful solution. And when so many people here and around the world overtly or covertly wish for one side to vanquish the other by force, we insist, as we have always done, that there is no military solution to this conflict. We hold on to our humanity. It is the value of each life that guides us through this storm. And I can't even imagine right, what each of them or you know, other Palestinians and Israelis are, are carrying and the weight of all the history and pain and violence that's embedded in their bodies and their experience. And yet there are some who have a commitment to nonviolence that prioritizes their need for rehumanization, right? To once again see the humanity in each other in spite of the ongoing conflict and violence. And so for us, right, as we consider people in our own lives, right, that have been a source of deep conflict or pain, Right? What would a practice of rehumanization look like for us? How might we focus on and rediscover the humanity of those we find difficult to engage with? And what are the common experiences and stories that might be able to help prepare a path, a way towards peacemaking? And then we continue in verse 4. So John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean region and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with the leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So apparently, John the Baptist is the embodiment of the word of the year, 2023. Right? Right? So if he's able to wear camel's hair, eat locusts with honey, and still attract crowds to come out in the middle of nowhere, the guy clearly has riz, right? <laughs> just saying. And I'm certain that I've just embarrassed my kids using Gen Z language. So you're welcome. But John the Baptist actually, he went old school by wearing the same outfit that the project Elijah was known for wearing. He was honoring the call to stand up against oppressive power systems and to live in solidarity with the poor. And so John the Baptist takes his work of preparation to the outskirts of society, out in the margins, away from the center of power. The wilderness is both a physical and symbolic place where we're meant to strip away our exterior layers, to bring awareness to areas of our lives that need to be disrupted from the status quo. 
And so John the Baptist knew that in order to disrupt the message and perspectives of the dominant culture, he needed to prepare for peace and shalom out in the margins. And so it comes to preparation for peace this Advent. Uh, maybe we're invited to be present in spaces and with people who are decentered from our own lives and experience. Right? How might we consider listening to voices that are outside of our circle of comfort? Because it's at the edges, right? It's at the edges of our circle where we find people who are not centered around our experience. And it's those interactions that move us towards change and transformation. And that's what makes us better peacemakers. You know, we announced this last week, but our partnerships team has selected uh, Interfaith Action of Central Texas, Texas uh, or IACT for short, as our primary local partner for the next couple of years. And we're excited to collaborate and volunteer with their various programs um, that provide different services to underserved and under-resourced individuals here in Austin. Uh, they have a program that supports refugees, um, teaching adults ESL classes and, and offering mentoring for youth. Uh, they have another program that focuses on housing repairs uh, for those who are under-resourced or uh, physically limited in their ability to work on their house. And then a third program they offer is something called the Red Bench, uh, which facilitates space for interfaith dialogue and conversation uh, once a month around different topics like forgiveness or privilege or global climate crisis. And we're planning to host one here at Vesper uh, sometime next spring, so uh, more details to come on that. But this past Tuesday, some of our Vox community um, attended the Red Bench hosted by St. James Episcopal, and the topic was grief in the midst of joy. And my table that I was sitting at had a mix uh, of various Christian faith traditions. And one of them was an Episcopal priest from Nicaragua. And he shared with us how he was in a season of disruption and uncertainty. The current political regime in Nicaragua has taken <clears throat> oppressive actions against churches by imprisoning or exiling many priests and religious leaders. And so it wasn't until he was about to board a plane back to Nicaragua recently that he was notified he wasn't allowed on the plane because he had been banned from returning to the country. And so now he's stuck here in the States trying to navigate our complex immigration system as a refugee. He won't have a chance to collect any of his personal belongings at his home, which are probably gone at this point. And to hear his story offered me a perspective that I had not known or experienced. Uh, it opened my eyes to what was happening in Central America that I was not aware of. It was also more than just a story because he was sitting there with us, living in his current challenging reality. And that's why I've always appreciated the space that I act and the Red Bench offers, because it moves me out of the center of my own life and invites me to the stories and experiences of others that I have very little understanding of. And so for us, maybe a practice we can try is to embed ourselves in places or with people that move us outside of our circle of comfort, right? into the edges and margins of our circle. And so IACT hosts a Red Bench conversation once a month, uh, so consider attending one next spring or even with Inside Books Project, right, the library that we have here. Volunteering to write letters and package books to Texas inmates 
is an opportunity to offer peace and shalom to someone who is on the margins and mostly forgotten in our society. And then we close in verse 7. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so it's clear that John the Baptist understands where he fits in the story. He recognizes his role is to prepare others for the arrival of Christ. And he acknowledges that he's only a human with limited capacity, but when Christ arrives, he will bring the divine with him. And what's interesting is that if you look right after this text, we find that John actually baptizes Jesus. And so for all the hype that he was sharing about Jesus and how John would defer to him, Jesus voluntarily chose to be baptized by John. And then right after that, we read that the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days as he would go through his own transformative desert experience. And so as Jesus begins his journey of bringing peace and shalom to this world, he models a pattern and practice of consent, right? By consenting to John, by consenting to the Spirit, he's releasing power and ego that just wants control. And so when it comes to our preparation for peace this Advent, we're invited to adopt a posture of consent to God's Spirit. In order to experience Christ's peace and to embody that peace for others requires a power outside of ourselves. And perhaps an invitation for us during Advent is to practice moments of consent throughout and as often as we're reminded. You know, Thomas Keating developed the welcome prayer as a practice of consent. To hold loosely the things that tend to have control over us. To intentionally remind ourselves of our need to let go and release. The way that we're wired as humans requires us to consistently and constantly return to that state and posture of consent because we desperately have an internal need for control. And so this short contemplative prayer provides us with the opportunity to release and let go. And so I'd like to invite us just to take a few moments right now to actually engage in this practice of consent. And so go ahead and sit up in a comfortable position. Keep your feet grounded on the floor. You can close your eyes or soften your gaze if that's helpful. You'll notice any tightness in your neck or shoulders or back. Maybe roll your shoulders or your neck to release that tension. And then take a couple deep breaths. Inhale through your nose and exhale through your mouth. And then take one more deep breath. Inhale through your nose and exhale through your mouth. If it's helpful, rest your hands on your lap with your palms facing up as a posture of consent and letting go. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I welcome everything that comes to me today because I know it's for my healing. 
I welcome all thoughts, feelings, emotions, persons, situations, and conditions. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire for affection, esteem, approval, and pleasure. I let go of my desire for survival and security. I let go of my desire to change any situation, condition, person, or myself. I open to the love and presence of God and God's action within. And I'll read through this prayer one more time. And as you hear the words, continue to allow your body just to release and consent to God's spirit. <coughs> welcome, welcome, welcome. I welcome everything that comes to me today because I know it's for my healing. I welcome all thoughts, feelings, emotions, persons, situations, and conditions. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire for affection, esteem, approval, and pleasure. I let go of my desire for survival and security. I let go of my desire to change any situation, condition, person, or myself. I open to the love and presence of God and God's action within. So when you're ready, slowly open your eyes, softly return your gaze to the room. You know, my hope for us, Vox, is that as we continue to move through this Advent season, is that even with all the disruptions and conflicts that exist around us, that we would be intentional in our preparation for experiencing Christ's peace, and to also practice peacemaking. That we would find ways to embody and practice shalom towards each other and ourselves. And so let me close with this poem uh, written by Caitlin Curtis, who identifies as a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation. It's titled Shalom, Her Magnetic Heart. You and I are other to each other, foreign creatures locked in our independent skin. You and I, we're unnerved when we're together. We're fractured, disconnected, thin as moth wing. And yet the same stuff that tears us from each other gravitates us to each other. And all along, the earth keeps spinning to help us shake the regret dust from our shoulders. I cannot assume you, and you cannot assume me. And yet, 
we began in the same womb of thought, the same dream of beginning. We started and we will end. And in between, we can detonate bombs or unmake them. We can tighten the noose or make climbing ropes. We can pull triggers or bury our weapons beneath the trees in our city parks and let our oneness grow out of their metal mouths. You and I are other to each other, but desperate enough to invade these spaces, desperate enough to fill up the missing places, patch up the broken links, re-engage where we've abandoned. Shalom. She is a sacred word, an everlasting act. Shalom. She is an enduring vision on the darkest night. And that magnet force that keeps fighting against our pulling and tugging because she puts us always back where we were before, hand in hand by the fire. Shalom. She knows us better. Shalom. She binds together the blistered souls and we quiet ourselves, eyes locked, all otherness dissipated in a stream of perfect light. And so we ask all this in the love of God, our creator, the peace of Christ, and the freedom of the spirit. Amen.